Um, today, as we move through uh, redemptive history in um, our lessons here, we're going to look at the life of David. Um, last week, we began to look at the, uh, the monarchy of Israel. And this morning, um, rather than looking at the personal life of David, I, I want to focus in on the um, Davidic, God's Davidic covenant, his covenant with David. Um, so let's open in prayer and we will we'll try to set the stage um, for the study this morning. Holy Father, thank you for your redeeming love. Thank you for your eternal word. Um, Lord, we acknowledge this morning your sovereignty, your grace, and your abounding mercy. We pray that uh, we would understand uh, more of your redemptive plan and how throughout the pages of history um, there was one goal in mind and that goal was certainly to be met in and through your son Jesus Christ. So help us to see uh, the life of David uh, the historical monarchy of Israel, um, all leading to the redeeming work of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we left off with Saul, who was Israel's first um, king. And uh, Saul had uh, a lot of issues in his life. And you know the story. He uh, led a life of envy, jealousy, rage, he uh, lacked faith and trust, Um, whether or not he was a real true believer, only eternity will tell, I don't want to sit and make a judgment, I've heard people ask, you know, do you believe Saul was saved? We don't know. Um, We see his life in the pages of scripture, um, and seeking the life of David for years, um, he sought counsel from a medium, the witch of Endor, um, trying to, to, to seek counsel from Samuel, who was deceased, and I think God really allowed that to happen and, and scared the wits out of the medium. And uh, Saul finally dies. He's taken... Um, by the Philistines, his sons die alongside of Saul. And you would think that at the end of that long, drawn-out civil war, that uh, you know David would rejoice. But if you look at First uh, Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Samuel, chapter one, we read the heart of David. <clears throat> Verse 17, it says, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. Then when you get down to verse 24, listen to the words of David. He says, You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now that tension between Saul and David all started back in 1 Samuel <clears throat> chapter 17 where the Philistines had surrounded 
the people of Israel. They had surrounded the armies of Israel. And day after day after day, uh, the Philistines' mighty warrior Goliath not only challenged the Israelites, but also challenged Almighty God. He mocked the Israelites. He mocked their God. And the king of Israel saw, <clears throat> trembled. I mean, he, he was scared to death as he faced this champion warrior. And if you recall the story, <clears throat> Jesse, who had sons in that army, was also the father of David. And he instructed David one day, I want you to say, take some cheese and some food um, to your brothers who are out in the front line. So David goes out to the front line, he brings his brother's food, and he hears this mocking voice across the valley. And he says, he will not shame the people of Israel, he will not shame the God of Israel. And if you, as you recall the story, David says, you know, who's going to take on this warrior? Who's going to take on this giant? And uh, all the Israelites, all these leaders, these warriors were, were retreating in fear. David says, I'll take him. So they put um, Saul's armor on David, and he says, look, I haven't practiced in this thing. I, I can't do this. Take this off. So he chooses for himself five smooth stones, takes his, puts them in his little shepherd pouch, takes his sling, and he goes out and he confronts this champion warrior. Knocks him out cold. And then the scripture says he pulls the champion Goliath's sword from his own sheath and then kills him, chops his head off. Takes Goliath's head with him and he takes all of Goliath's um, armor and puts it in his tent and uh, he's victor. Later on, David is exalted as a man of valor, a man of courage, a warrior, a hero. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says, The woman sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then Saul, verse 8, was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can have how, what more can he have but the kingdom? And notice verse 9. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. For years he chases David around, wants him dead, but the hand of the Lord is upon David, for David was God's chosen king and was a man after what? His own heart. We read of that in 1 Samuel 13. But now your kingdom, he said to Saul, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I mean, thousands of years later, in the New Testament, Paul is preaching and in chapter 13 of Acts, he says, they have asked for a king, then they asked for a king, Israel. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all 
my will. David, as you know, is remembered as the supreme king of the Old Testament. David was God's choice. Saul was what? Israel's choice. And Moses prophesied back in Deuteronomy that the people are going to cry out for a king because they're going to want to be like everybody else. And when the day comes, give them their king. And then he gives instructions for the kingship of Israel. So David conquered many nations. David was uh, strong. He was benevolent. He was an administrative diplomat. Um, He was incredibly gifted, uh, a gifted child. He was a musician. He was a poet. He was a warrior. Uh, The guy was a prodigy. Unique. Artist. He had it all. And he also had a repentant heart. Now we know David's mistakes. David counted Israel, remember? He counted Israel, which was to, what did that reveal? Remember when he counted his troops? His pride. You know, you forget quickly when you have a lot, you forget quickly when you're gifted with a lot, um, who's in charge. And that it's all by grace. David counted his military might and God judged him for it. You know, the Bible tells us in one, in, in one portion of Scripture that um, God moved David to count his troops. First Chronicles says that what? Satan moved David to count his troops. Which is to say that God allowed Satan to move and tempt David to count his troops, and that's exactly what he did. And then God chastened him for it. David fell into deep and dark sin with Bathsheba. He killed Uriah. He didn't repent of the sin for upward of a year. And then finally he's confronted with that sin and in broken repentance he, he calls out to God and he pens Psalm 51 and you can read the heart of a man after God's own heart by that psalm alone. But there was a promise here. David will go on to establish uh, the capital of Jerusalem, as as we'll look at in a moment, uh, would finally conquer the Jebusites, and he would make Jerusalem the capital where the house of David would in turn be. And that, of course, uh, would become Mount Zion, where our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, for it was through David's throne that God's kingdom would be established forever. And that's the key point of our study this morning. In Acts 13, in that same message that uh, Saul, uh, Paul, preaches, he said, of this man's offspring, David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. So the establishment of the house of David is is an integral part of God's master plan of redemption in crushing the head of who? The serpent. Genesis 3.15. That this part of redemptive history is very significant in carrying out the promise that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God said to Satan, to the serpent, There is one coming. Through the woman's seed and your seed, there will be hostility. 
You will bruise his heel, but in the end, he will crush your head. And the establishment of this Davidic kingdom plays a key role in the fulfillment of that promise. You can mark this down. We don't have time to look at it. But uh, for instance, in Psalm 78, verses 67 to 72, makes it clear that the placement of David on the throne uh, was very significant in God's redeeming purposes historically. And if you just read that, you'll, you'll hear through the psalmist God speaking with how he delivered his people from Egypt and how he uh, would raise up a king that through his line would come in a kingdom that uh, is everlasting. So he, he paved the way for righteousness in setting up his servant, David. Now many believe that the climax of the old covenant is found in the coming of the kingdom in David's day. And I agree with that. Because when the king sits on his throne, the kingdom has what? The kingdom has come. Old Testament and New Testament. When David sat on his throne, the kingdom had come. When we get to the new covenant, the kingdom has come when the king arrived, and that was Jesus Christ. And David prefigured who? The king of kings. A foreshadowing of the coming one. He prefigured the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, to understand this, this Davidic covenant is to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to look at this in, in a few minutes, but just to kind of breeze through this to get the main point. Saul's dead. David is king, though he was anointed as a child, he's officially anointed for the role um, once Saul is deceased. And David, verse 1, says, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So Nathan said to the king, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, David wanted to build the Lord a house, a temple. But the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought you up out, uh, my people from um, Egypt until this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following um, the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for yourself, make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 11, He says, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That's key. Will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you you that shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now, who did that? Who built that house? Saul. uh, um, Solomon, I mean, which we'll look at next week. It was his son Solomon that would build the temple. 
who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall to be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the Davidic covenant what's known as the Davidic Covenant. Now, the book of 2 Samuel records four important events which provide the context for what we just read. Okay? Four important events that precede this covenant of promise. And in 2 Samuel 7, this is the formal inauguration of God's covenant with David, which is an eternal covenant. This is the formal inauguration of that covenant, chapter 7. So these four important um, events provide the context, which we'll look at briefly. Number one was that the long civil war between David and Saul had to end. That was the first significant event that had to take place to where David could be recognized as king. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, It says, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. And then they anointed David king over Israel. Chapter 5, verse 12. It says that David perceived that the Lord had established him a king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. David understood that this was not about him. David understood that this was about God and God's covenant people. And David was simply an, an, an implement, a, a, an instrument for God to work out his divine plan. David perceived that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for his people. Israel's sake. Now you think about this. When David was at war with Saul, actually Saul was at war with him, David couldn't have conceived of anything to occur in order for him to take the throne other than for David to have to wipe out the other side. And every time he had the opportunity to do it, what did he do? He said, far be it for me to touch the Lord's what? the Lord's anointed. He could have wiped, he could have put the sword through Saul on two different occasions. Once Saul is sleeping, and they're camped out. David's standing right there. One of David's men says, let me take the spear which was stuck in the ground near Saul's head. Let me take the spear and run it through him right now and I'll only have to do it once, David. <laughs> David said no. And in the course, of course, in, in, in the cave, when Saul is in there, David cuts off the robe, could have killed him, and he didn't. But the Lord allowed this to happen. David established, the Lord rather, established David as king. So that's the first thing 
that uh, had to precede this covenantal promise, and that is that the civil war had to end and the throne David had to sit upon. Once Saul was removed, that took place. It took 40 years, but it took place. Secondly, in 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 and 7, we, we see where David captures the stronghold of the Jebusites and takes Jerusalem for himself. 2 Samuel 5, verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. Listen to this. But the blind and the lame, they'll ward you off. The blind and the lame, David, will, will resist you. That's how weak you are. They were thinking David cannot come in here. Verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now, if you remember, the Jebusites had for a long time been a thorn in the side of Israel. And at the original conquest of entering into the promised land, what did God instruct Israel to do with the Jebusites? Wipe them out. Destroy every man, woman, and child. But they, they refused to do that, just like the Amalekites. Saul spared Amalek, remember that? And then Samuel cut him to bits. When God said wipe him out, he meant wipe him out. And every time they didn't wipe him out, it would come back to bite them in the end. And the Amalekites frustrated Israel time and time again in the future because they didn't wipe him out in the first place. So here, David finally wipes out the Jebusites hundreds of years later and takes this stronghold. the city of Jerusalem. So that's the second thing that had to take place. The civil war had to end, number one. Number two, the city had to be captured. This stronghold. The Jebusites overtaken. The city of Jerusalem. David enters into. And then thirdly, 2 Samuel 6, verse 16 and 17, we see that David brings the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6, verse 16. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Remember, David is dancing just rejoicing and his clothes are all falling off and she thinks he's an idiot. But this is very significant. The civil war ended, had to end. David takes the throne. He captures the stronghold of the Jebusites. Here now is Jerusalem. It's the city of David. Then the ark of the Lord is brought back, which is very significant because that represented the throne of God. The ark of the covenant represented the presence of God, the rule of God amongst his people. So he brings the ark into the capital in the same location of David who's king, which, which emphasizes the fact that God rules these people. And I'm appointed by him to lead Israel. I'm an instrument in the hand of Almighty God. That was the heart of David. He understood this. So God's presence was symbolized by way of the presence of the Ark of the Covenant for which the Philistines had stolen 
So that's number three. And then finally, number four, we're told in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, that the Lord had given David rest from all of his enemies. So in other words, the Lord had finally brought about a level of peace for Israel for which they had never experienced up to this point. All of this had to take place before this covenant was made with David. So now in the, con- in the context of the culmination of those four things, David pours out the thoughts of his heart to the faithful prophet, Nathan. And he says, see now, I, Nathan, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within the tents of curtains. So you see, David sensed the absurdity of his living in an oppressive palace while the ark of God was still underneath a tent. He goes, I want to build the, house. I want to build the Lord a house. So now that all these things, all these events have taken place, if you notice back in 2 Samuel 7, we hear God's response. Chapter 7, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So this is a very important spiritual truth that the Lord wants to drive home in the heart and the mind of David. And this was God's willingness through the 40 years of wilderness wandering that God was with who? He's with his people. They're in the wilderness, God travels with them. He leads them. Cloud of uh, uh, fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. When God moved, they moved. When God began to move, they rolled up camp and they moved on. And God was with them. This is a picture of God being with his people, tabernacling among his people. Which prefigures what, beloved? Huh? John 1.14. Jesus, the promised one. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, nothing was made that was made that was made without him. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God came and visited his creation by taking on human flesh, pitching his tent of humanity among his creation. So God says, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 11, that he will establish his people in their own land. He will give them rest from their enemies. And ultimately, again, verse 11, the Lord himself will build David a house. Okay, here's the thing. David wants to build God a house. God says, no, you can't build me a house. But I'll build you a house. Now, what's really interesting is that uh, if you look at your Hebrew concordance, you will see that the word temple, the word, uh, the word house, are the same word. So there's this play on words in this this dialogue between David wanting to do this 
And the Lord saying, you will not build me a house, but I will build you um, a house or a temple and so on. You will not build me a house, a temple, but I will build you a house. So house and temple, the same word. And he says here that he will establish through David someone after him. A house that lasts forever. Which means what? A literal house? No, but a dynasty. A dynasty. House, temple, dynasty. All mean the same thing. So back and forth, there's this awesome dialogue going on to where the Lord says, you will build me nothing. I'm the one that's sovereign. I will build you something. And it will last forever. Verse 16, your house, your kingdom will be established forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So was the Lord speaking of building David a house of cedar? No, not even close. He was speaking of building David, or through David, a dynasty that had much more to do with just him and Solomon and his uh, lineage that would sit upon the throne. For what, 400 years? A long time. That's longer than uh, Egypt had one on the throne consistently. 400 years. So this promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in, in what, beloved? The reign of who? The reign of Jesus Christ. For it's through the seed of David that the succession of this kingdom would finally be fulfilled. And again, when you get to the second Saul of Scripture, when he's preaching in Acts 13, he says, in verse 23, Of this man's offspring, David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. So this pre-illustration of the unbroken eternal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ was prefigured in David. Where David reigned and David ruled, And that through that dynasty, one would come who would reign and rule forever. And where does he sit now? He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is upon the throne. He rules now. This, by the way, is one of the classic examples, beloved, of why we should not allow the Old Testament pattern of description to determine our understanding of the New Testament. You see what I mean? If we want to understand the Old Testament, we must interpret it by way of the new. To understand this covenantal promise and the fulfillment thereof, we read the fulfillment of the mystery of Jesus Christ in the new. It's very important because if you don't, you will end up with that old-time dispensationalist belief that one day David is going to come back and literally sit on a throne in literal Israel. 
No. He was established and given the throne then, prefiguring the one who would sit upon the throne forever. That work has been done. Fulfilled in Christ. He's on the throne now. So we must interpret this, these glorious truths, by what we read in the New Testament. That's what our whole study in Revelation was all about. Or you get this skewed view. Hebrews, by the way, makes it clear that the Davidic reign of David, the Davidic reign established by God, was prophetic of Christ's reign. We don't want to expect that David's going to come back and sit on a throne for a thousand years, do we? No, he prefigured the, the eternal king who rules and reigns now. So the reality is always, by definition, the reality is always, by definition, clearer than the shadow is. And David was what? A shadow of who? Christ. David was a shadow of Christ. So you, you must interpret the shadow by the reality, not the reality by the shadow. Because David and his literal sons, Solomon, Solomon's sons, on down the line, historically, prefigured the reality of Christ. This is an eternal throne. This is an eternal promise. And when we read the preaching of Acts of the apostles, we see that Christ fulfilled this. Look at Romans 1. Paul's letter to the church at Rome. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the what? According to the flesh. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Promise beforehand concerning his son who was descended from David. Jesus confronts the Pharisees in Matthew 22, it was never the Pharisees confronting Jesus. It was really Jesus confronting them. In chapter 22, beginning in verse 41, they said to him, He will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. This is the Lord's great parable. Um, on the tenants of the vineyard... Um, they were beaten, which represents the prophets. And then finally, the owner of the vineyard says, hey, I'll send my own son. But instead of just beating him, they kill him. And then the Lord said, uh, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the one vineyard to the other tenants. Oh, that's the wrong passage. Verse 41. Um, 
While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He said, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him what? Calls him Lord. David, in the spirit, calls him Lord. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's Psalm 110. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus is addressing these quote-unquote Bible scholars that they don't understand the meaning of the text. So they miss him as Messiah. You've overlooked me, Jesus said. I'm the reality of the shadow. I'm the fulfillment of the promise. I'm the fulfillment of the law. And David referred to me as Lord. Here's the fulfillment of that Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 7. So our hermeneutic, and hermeneutic means the art of biblical interpretation, There has to be a key hermeneutic in order to understand Genesis to Revelation. And what is our key hermeneutic, beloved? It's Jesus. Jesus is our hermeneutic in understanding all of the scriptures. It's not a piece of land. It is not a temple that is to be built or rebuilt. It is the temple, the one who is on the throne, Jesus, the son of David, who is the Lord of David. Amen? Here then is the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. So David is the Old Testament model of divine intervention. Here is a man given the throne, promised that through his bloodline would come the Son of God. David, with all of his faults, with all of his sins, understood the necessity of grace and what? Mercy, which provides forgiveness, ever dependent upon the one that called him to the throne, understanding that there's nothing he can do in and of himself to be saved, but he must be the recipient of the grace of the one who would come through his line. That's amazing grace. So I wanted to focus more on this covenant than just the life of David as a man. So comments? Anybody want to add to that? You understand the significance of the covenantal promise with David? It's all Christ. Anybody? He was a patient man. I mean, imagine you're anointed as a boy. What was David? Maybe 17? I don't know. Maybe the most 17. When... uh, Samuel says to Jesse, bring all your sons. He says, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. Do you have any more sons? Well, 
one that's not very significant. He's just a lad. He's out watching the sheep. Bring him here. He said, this is the one. So just think about the patience involved between that time and the time where he actually is anointed for the role of king as far as practicing as king. Forty years with a guy who wants to kill him. And you read the Psalms and and, and you can hear the heart of David. He didn't understand. Seasons of doubt and depression. And nevertheless, the Lord brings that war to an end. So let that be an encouragement to you for the war that you're in. (laughs) The troubles you're in. Forty years. And then in response, David wants to build the Lord this glorious temple. And and the Lord says, look, I love you, but you're not going to do it. You're a man of what? You're a man of war, bloodshed. He was a warrior. This guy was a man. He was a man. Soft heart, but man, when he went to war, I mean, let's face it, there are times when he, he acted in rage. So you see all these different seasons of David's life. Moments of pride. Look at my military might. Go count him, Joab says. You know, that's not a good idea, David. The Lord will take care of who he's going to take care of. No, go count him. Okay. Deuteronomy 17. The king, when he's established in Israel, shall not multiply for himself himself wives. What did David do? Multiplied wives. Not only do you multiply wives, one day he's on his rooftop and he sees this extraordinarily beautiful woman. Go get her. And you, in the, and, and you know the rest of his story. So there then, the man David, here was a man after God's own heart. Why? Why was he a man after God's own heart? We know his life. It's transparent. Why is it, beloved? I'm sorry? Utter broken repentance before God. Even in the midst of his consequences. Remember when he counts Israel? God gave him his choice. How do you want me to judge you? You remember that? You can be overtaken by your enemies. But what did David say? He understood the mercy of God. He said, Lord, I don't remember the exact words, just to paraphrase. Man can be ruthless and they show no mercy, but you are merciful. I'd rather have judgment from your hand directly. So God sends a plague on his warriors and tens of thousands of them die. He sins with Bathsheba and the Lord takes that baby's life. But this man would break in true heart repentance. Not a worldly sorrow because of the consequences of his sin. But in Psalm 51, David realized who he sinned against and what did he say? Against you and you alone. Have I sinned? And through this man comes the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed him, purchased him. So we can a lot to learn from David's life anyway. And the greatest thing we can learn is about the God he served. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the life of David. And we thank you that, going back 3,000 years ago, 
we can see the prefigured shadows of the one who would come ultimately to fulfill the law and the prophets. That is your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Savior that is our Savior was David's Savior. So help us, Lord, in the different seasons of life that we all face, uncertainties. Help us to be reminded by way of the life of David uh, that your sovereign plan is being worked out. So help us to have the patience to endure. All those who are here this morning uh, struggling through trial, tribulation, Lord, uh, help them to embrace the truth that they can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens them. In our times of weakness, help us to keep our eyes affixed upon you. When we fall into sin, maybe we be quick to confess, repent, and move on in the grace that is provided through this one who was promised through David, our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.